Okay, so hello everyone and welcome to the third episode of WK's Hamid podcast. I'm Alan Zepa, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host Karen McLaughlin. Hi guys, how you doing? Hope you all keep well. And today I'm also delighted to be joined by Dutch football expert and someone who's probably been to more countries than I'll ever be, James Rowe. Hello, mate. Good evening, uh, guys. How are you both? Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, what an introduction. <laughs> Hello, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, keeping well. I hope you both keeping safe and also the listeners too. I'm fine. So... Let's jump straight into the questions. So, uh, the first question. You've been uh, watching football uh, in person all around the world, but what's the best atmosphere you've experienced? I think it's a great question to begin with, guys. And I would say the best atmosphere I've ever experienced at a game would be uh, Flamengo Vasco de Gama in the Maracanã in Rio de Janeiro uh, in March 2015. It was my first ever trip to South America, having done an awful lot of research and investigation to know what you're letting yourself in for. And fortunately, during my stay there, Flamingo were playing Vasco da Gama and their two teams from the city of Rio. You know, this was a championship state game where, uh, you know, the, the states weren't really high, but you could really experience the the um the rivalry. You know, there was flags as big as buildings. There was a noise I'd never known Never known anything like it. And also, you know, the fans just just singing in unison in one what appeared to be one voice was very special indeed. Also, upon entering the stadium, you know, you you know when going through the turnstiles and going through the gates and the, and the huge wide corridors of the stadium that, you know, this is a, a Brazilian teams that have played here in the past and European club sides. It was a, a very, very special experience. I'd love to experience something like that once. At least once in my lifetime. I'm sure you'll be able to do that in future, Alan. You're still young and we'll, you'll still be able to experience it, I'm sure. What's the biggest game you've been to in terms of derby or occasion, you know, like last last day of the season, title chase, for example? Um, I'd say the biggest game, and obviously I'm biased because I'm an Arsenal fan, but for me, oh, I love the, to hear it. The, the, <laughs> the North London derby, it's a it's a huge it's a huge thing for me. You know, I was I've been an Arsenal fan for more than thirty years, and um, you know the one of the, the famous North London derby at Highbury when um, Thierry Henry scored his amazing goal dribbling from his own half. You know, I was at that game, and the atmosphere that particular day in a three 0 win at Highbury was very special. No, I love to hear that. I'm a Gooner myself, so that is music to my ears. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a, it was a really special day. I mean, I, I was in the West Stand that day, and uh, I to watch him pick up the ball. When you pick, when you saw him pick up the ball, you knew what was going to happen. It was like it was um it was like um you know he picked it up, and it was kind of like the whole ground was kind of aware of what um what was about to take place, and for him to take on all those players and slot the ball away in the way he did, and then you know go all the way down to slide on his knees in front of the Spurs fans, you know, was was very special. And for someone to know what the North London derby means to uh, means to Arsenal fans, also the um, the four two four two derby win under Unai Emery was also very special to be at. But uh, one caveat I would like to say to you both is um, Ajax final 
since obviously for the last 15 years whether it's being played in Amsterdam or Rotterdam for example the away set of fans are not allowed to attend for example if the game is played in Rotterdam Ajax fans are not allowed to attend and vice versa if the game is played here in Amsterdam so it was the last it was the last derby of Ajax final where um, both fans were in attendance final one 2-0 with goals from Kalou and Delacout so it shows you how long ago it was but that was yeah. also a a very special atmosphere in terms of the derby and, and high stakes games. So I would say that the North London derby and IX final are, are two games that really stand out for me in that respect. That's a very good answer. Going back to your main, let's say, job right now, you've been interviewing loads of players also all around the world. Um, what's your favorite interview favorite uh, to be honest guys I get this question quite a lot I've been interviewing professional players and managers for nearly four years and um, listeners can check out my work on uh, worldfootballindex.com and also on my twitter feed at James Rowe NL and for example yesterday um, my 143rd publication in just on just over two years was published with the Assistant Chief Executive of the PFA, Simon Barker. And whenever I get the question of my favourite interview, I always like to turn it around because it's difficult to say which one is your favourite. But I always like to say about there's three watershed interviews that have kind of brought me into the position I am today. The first one is um, my very first interview with the then manager of Den Bosch in the Netherlands, William Flut. He managed uh, Arda Den Haag and he also managed Sparta Rotterdam. And he was the very first professional manager I interviewed. He invited me to uh, Den Bosch to the stadium and we spoke for about half an hour. And that was when, you know, when you have your very first interview with a professional player or manager, it, you, you kind of wonder what's going to happen next. And just hard work and application and interviewing different players and Dutch players and managers and interviewing them in, in their mother tongue and also Spanish players and, and English players too. And so William Flute was the first one that really holds a special place. The, the one that really um, made me think that this is starting to go somewhere and could be quite big and quite life-changing was when I interviewed Danny Cowley, who was then manager of Lincoln. He was manager of Lincoln City in England. And um, I put in a request to speak to him. And um, I kind of, you kind of let you put requests in and you let them... Uh, you let them be picked up or not, you know, you're dealing with professionals. And, and one day my phone went and I picked it up and it said, hello, James, Danny Cowley. I said, hello. He said, um, he said, James, I've got to be honest with you. I don't normally do telephone interviews. He said, but I've read some of your stuff and it's really, really good. And I'm more than happy to help you out. And I thought, wow, you know, this is a manager who's really going places. And, you know, he's, he's now um, Huddersfield manager. And I was yeah. fortunate enough to be able to... Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to congratulate him when he became Huddersfield manager and he, he acknowledged my, my text, which was nice. And, um, you know, you have to remember that you're dealing with professionals at all times. You know, you are, in terms of tailor-making the interviews, making sure that all the questions are correct, asking something that not everybody asks. And, um, yeah, so that was a very special interview. And I would say my last interview, guys, my latest interview is with the Assistant Chief Executive of the PFA, Simon Barker. And as you may know, the, uh, player, uh, the Professional uh, Footballers Association is uh, in the news due to the current situation we find ourselves in. And I 
got to speak to the second in command, who is a very, very busy man, even in these very strange times. And um, it was great to speak to him about his role within the PFA and what they have to do and what they arrange and looking after the best interests of uh, of professional players. And it was great to kind of um, get the information out there to all different readers and fans of football about, for example, the nuances and facts that every professional um, footballer or scholar is a member of the PFA. They have a 100% membership. You know, they look out for the interest of players in terms of not just uh, during their career, but after their career and thinking about a potential new profession and helping in many different ways. So it was wonderful to be able to, uh, to bring that information out to a wider audience and also speak to him about his own career, playing for England at youth um, under 21 level and also playing for Blackburn Rovers and Queen's Park Rangers. So for me, when people say, what's my favourite interview, I always go back to the free watershed interviews, which I believe have brought me to the position I am I am today. Yeah, very good answer, if I were to say myself. Thank you. So obviously you do both broadcasting and writing. Um, so basically, what would your advice be to upcoming sports journalists like myself and Alan in that respect, would you stick to one field or do what you're doing, go into multiple? Well, first and foremost, uh, Kieran, I would say that it's important for the um, upcoming sports writer or broadcaster to do what they feel it, they're comfortable with. You know, to find a niche where they can uh, they can really blossom. You know, where they uh, you know it, it doesn't mean that that particularly has to be broadcasting or written. First and foremost, I have to find a niche in, in terms of knowledge, in terms of passion, and that could be very small in comparison to others, but the most important thing is they believe in what they do. And uh, to give you an example, I, um, I interview Dutch players and managers in their mother tongue, and the interviews are conducted in Dutch and in most cases published in English, and the player feels completely comfortable. So it's, it's me using a skill that I've learned to make sure that an interview can be conducted when nothing will be misinterpreted. And uh, you just have to believe in what you do and give it all, give it everything you've got. I mean, I started out on this road in particular four years ago. And uh, I, I, when I started, if you just said to me that I speak to the likes of Simon Barker, Viv Anderson, Danny Cowley, and also Dutch players and managers of also the, the women's team as well, or more than half of the women's team, that, um, that played in, in the FIFA World Cup women's final I've spoken to. So you just have to believe in what you do. But the most important advice I would give to any young writer or broadcaster guys is, is to do what they feel comfortable in. You know, you've got a lot of people trying to get into such a small space. You've got lots of people trying to stand out in different ways. But if you believe in what you're doing and you take things slowly, you'll be surprised with how far you can go. Good advice indeed. That's uh, just a very good uh, tip for anyone uh, who's listening and also is an up-and-coming writer. I'll stick to the topic of your journeyman journalism, if you can call it that way. What is the weirdest thing uh, you've seen at a football match in a foreign country? The weirdest thing? Yeah. Now, that's a really good question, but I'm going to have to... Um, I'll tell you what comes to mind. And it's not necessarily weird, but it's something you don't expect. 
Um, last September, I was at Sporting Lisbon at Rio Ava. Uh, yeah. went on a holiday in Lisbon. And Sporting Lisbon were in dire straits off the pitch. The atmosphere around the grounds and the, the fans was uh, was a little bit toxic. They weren't happy. They were losing. They were on a run where they couldn't buy a win for, for love nor money. And they were playing the Rio Arva, who were coached by former uh, Swansea and Sheffield United manager Carlos Carvajal. Uh, and um, they lost the game. And they were leading in the game. And um, I looked to my left. I was in the, the main stand. And I looked to my left and I had... Uh, I saw police going into the uh, to the stands and 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 fighting and jostling with the with the home fans. The home fans were going out onto the stadium concourse, then coming back in, then having a ruck, a ruck with the police, and then coming back for more every time. And it this was while the game was still going on. This oh, wow. was while the, the game was still going on, and it was like a um, it was like a long it was like pulling teeth really. It was like a long extension of, of their feelings and their frustration and when the final whistle went honestly you'd never you'd never heard anything like it I think it was like eight minutes of injury time and the um, the, the, the moans and of discontent when they lost that game in particular was uh, was very strange indeed I mean obviously being a football uh, loving football at all, the, all different levels and, and wanting to go to the game whilst I was in Lisbon it was uh, it was a very strange experience and to see to see um, fans in the stands behind the goal, where, where, where the ultras are, going back, coming back and forth to um, battle with police whilst the football game is still going on was very strange indeed. Yeah, wow. That's... Uh, yeah, so obviously you work for a number of organisations. Do you have one goal or aim or organisation when I work for full-time eventually? A great question, Kieran. Um, I would say that the, the, the main aim that I have is to work for a professional club on the media side, uh, to work as maybe a press officer or as a player well, welfare manager or communications manager. And that is what I'm working towards. And I'd like to think that every interview brings me a little bit closer because you're showing that you're able to... Um, conduct yourself and, and speak with technical directors, sporting directors, chairmen, press officers, players and managers at all different levels and, and before going to work for a club that you've already shown that you can deal with that, which is a, a great feather in the cap and uh, reminds me of when I went to interview with the then player of uh, Pexwala, Philip Sandler, who signed for Manchester City and is currently on loan at Anderlecht. I went to interview him when, when he just signed for Manchester City and um, they allowed me to go to the stadium in Tuala to speak to him and uh, I was waiting in the in the press area and the press officer of Peg Tuala came to me who was having a bit of a chat whilst they were waiting for the training session to finish and he said that it's um, he said it's very strange that someone who I was relatively unknown then obviously the reputation is growing now but um, he said to me he said it's very um it's, uh, it's uh, very promising that someone who, who, at the time, this is going back two years ago, relative, relatively unknown, is managing to get such big names because I, I managed to speak to the likes of Ricky Van Rollerswinkel and Mike van der Horen and uh, Justin Hochma, who played, um, played for yeah. uh, Hoffenheim. And uh, I just said, you know, it's, it's all about hard work and, and professionalism and 
actually interviewing in different languages helps a lot. And I remember that the, the press officer of Pexwara told me that um, there's no specific training to become a, a press officer, for example, but he said what you've achieved already is, uh, is very promising and to keep that up and, uh, and hopefully that will be, uh, that will put me in the, um, in the picture if you like. But um, I'm just very proud, guys, of the um, 143 interviews I have for World Football Index and also um, the, the skill set of interviewing in different languages and, and dealing with uh, players and managers and people that are part of football clubs all over Europe. You know, because you treat the, the trick is to, in my opinion, I treat everybody the same. You know, there's no hairs and graces. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you are Viv Anderson or, or Bob Wilson or Simon Barker or if you are a Dutch player playing in Denmark or if you are a Dutch player playing in Italy. You know, it's about. Every, I always say that everybody has a story to tell, and it's about um, it's about getting that story out there for lots of different people to read. So the the main goal would be, guys, is to work for a professional club on the media side. Hopefully. Every interview brings me to just that little bit closer. Yeah, of course. the The media side of a football club um, is, uh, I know, is very hard because uh, I do some work for um, Dagenham and Redbridge. Mm. I help as like a media assistant on match day, and mm. I, I speak to the press office a lot. And it's it's a very hard job. It takes up a lot of their time. You know, obviously during the week they're in the offices, on the weekend. They might have an away game on the Sunday. You might have to edit. So it's a lot of hard work. But obviously, you're a very dedicated journalist. So I'm sure you do very well at it. I would like to think so, guys. I would like to think so. As I say, it's a, I've put myself in a position where I already have four years' experience, nearly. So I'd like to think that before going into that world, you, you already have four, four years' experience. You already have four, four years' experience where you're not... You're not flustered at speaking with a chairman or with a sporting director or with an assist, assistant chief executive. You know, you know who you're dealing with. And, and football is such a small world that, you know, you have um, correspondents coming through quite regularly. And I can fully understand the um, press officer of Dagenham Redry as well. And for me, it's about preparation, about preparation to, to get yourself in, a, in that position one day. And then hopefully, if I do manage to get myself in that position, that's when the hard work will start. But it will be it will be just that little bit easier because of the experience that I would have already accrued. I'm certain that you'd do a great job at a football club if you were Thank to you. Uh, if you were to work at one. You have a lot of knowledge about the Dutch football. Mm-hmm. Obviously, living in Amsterdam, which Eredivisie player? Should West Ham United sign, in your opinion? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, I would suggest um, Calvin Stengs. He's a winger who um, played a huge part in IZ's uh, successful season where they finished joint second with Ajax before the Dutch FA decided to curtail this season. He's very quick, he's very nimble, and he can provide great width. And he's... um, he came back from a terrible knee injury, and he managed. And when he sustained that knee injury, people were worried that he would not be able to return to his best. But um, he's uh, he's come back stronger, and he's um, also put himself in the position to to play for the Dutch national team and to be called into squads. And the future is definitely bright. And you see a lot of people. Um, you see a lot of people linking him with big moves. But I think West Ham could well be a good move for him because it's not the 
It's not the the top end of the Premier League. It's a good, solid Premier League club. Obviously, living in London would also be attractive. And you also see with the likes of Fornells that uh, that West Ham signed how well he did at BLAL. You know, in a similar, you know, I said and BLAL are somewhat similar in terms of um, league standing, in terms of uh, quite high up in the league, respected in their initial league. So I think I would say in that respect, guys, I would say Calvin Stings. Yeah, there's a few uh, AZ players. Myron Baudu, also a great player. Uh, Calvin Stanks, as you mentioned. Usama Idrissi. And uh, one, I think, uh, would be the best fit. uh, Town Cop Miners. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't disagree, guys. I don't disagree, but what I will tell the listeners is that these players in particular are all youth players from Azad Alagmar. Adrissi, of course, also has a um, had a spell in the past, I believe, at Groningen, and uh, also plays for the Moroccan national team. Um, this is, is no fluke by Azad Alagmar. Azad Alagmar made a deliberate decision a few years ago when constructing their training, their new training centre for the youth and the new training ground that they was they was going to invest heavily in youth and they did, even to the fact of the small finer details of every changing room that the youth categories go in, that they uh, every changing room they go into they're closer to the first team. And um, so they're really reaping the benefits of um of um, the youth um, and putting into the youth like they've done. And um I don't disagree, Cold Miners did you see by doing things, you know, they're all very good players. I don't think there'll be a mass exodus um, as people anticipate. You know, I said Alakamal will be playing in the qualifying rounds for the Champions League, and I think these young players will want to play in that. You know, these young players realise that, um, you know, I said really put their um, their trust in youth, and these young players were able to blossom. And I, I don't think that when I don't think all of them are going to leave in the summer, maybe one or two. But I also think that some may well stay. But Coldman is in particular, he has a great brain. And to be able to dictate the pace of a game at such a young age is very impressive. So uh, I said they're definitely reaping the benefits of their trust in youth at the moment. There's a lot of great young players at uh, AZ Alkmaar right now. And the ones who we've mentioned are just the tip of the iceberg at the I moment. Agree. Yeah, so regarding transfers and obviously with what's going on, how do you think the transfer market's going to work this summer and, well, beyond? Um, My personal opinion is that I think that it will um, correct itself a little bit and I think we'll see more clubs exploring player exchanges and I think that that will be uh, something to be looked at. I think that um, I don't think we'll see this huge prices that we've seen in the past, especially when you know we're in a, a crisis where safety is the most important thing, regardless of country, and you know that people have the uh, protective equipment and that the frontline services are, you know, they've done such fantastic work in many different countries that they kind of also get what they deserve in terms of um, remuneration and, and that kind of thing. So I don't think we're going to see huge. Um, huge um, fees going forward guys but what I do think I think it's a great opportunity for clubs to reassess because you see many many young players and I've spoken to a lot of young players as well who um, made a big move at a young age and maybe 
ended up on the bench or their career was curtailed by injury. You know, you, you need obviously talent and application in football, but you also need a little bit of luck. You need a manager that believes in you. You need to, to be in the right place at the right time. And I think we'll find a lot of players and a lot of clubs just being just that little bit more aware of being aware of the club they're signed for, being aware of them. Um, what's gone before. For example, when a club is looking for a player, I think they'll look at their, their previous in terms of injury record, in terms of appearances, in terms of goals. And I also think that the player will in turn look at the club. You know, it's not just about that payday, especially for young players. The most important thing is that you play. And you can't, you can't plan a career. You know, you can't, because you never know what's going to happen. It could be curtailed by injury. A manager could leave and maybe... It, comes in and another player is maligned. So I think we'll see a change in terms of just that little bit more awareness. And I think potential player exchanges may be more common in future. Do you think there will be a structured um, summer transfer window like from a specific date to an end date? Or do you think they'll do it differently because of what's going on? I think they'll entertain to look at, to do it differently, guys, to be honest. Um, I think, um, first and foremost, it's the decisions made regarding when do um, the leagues finish. Like, for example, the Eredivisie here is finished and Ziyech uh, in particular is contracted until the 30th of June before he signs for, before going to Chelsea, as he's already signed. Um, but I think UEFA have made it quite clear that all associations have to state before the 25th of May what they're planning to do. So they need to understand what's happening with, I believe, all 55 associations before the 25th of May. And I think after that date, there'll be a bit more, a bit more clarity. Obviously, we have three weeks to go. But it wouldn't surprise me if they maybe shorten the window and just change things around just that little bit. Yeah, I agree on the exchange deal part. Uh, I think that that will be something that the clubs will explore a bit more. And staying on the topic, what's your opinion on uh, how Ligue 1 decided to end their season? And should all top European leagues follow that route? I think it's a great question. Um, I think a very brave decision from Ligue 1, especially in the case of uh, Amiens, who, uh, who threatened to take their case even further. And you also saw in the Netherlands, for example, when the Cairo Bay decided to take their decision that clubs that were affected, such as Cambu Leroy and in the Graafschap, they were um, they lawyered up immediately. And also FC Utrecht, who, who didn't even get the opportunity to play the cup final against Feyenoord. So it's a very brave decision from France. Also to promote Lorient and Lens, you know, and to have two to go down and two to go up. Um, a, a brave decision, but also, you can understand why they've taken it. But um, as to whether other associations should follow suit, some leagues are bigger than others. Some clubs are richer than others. You see in the case of the Premier League, there is uh, lots of speculation coming out as to um, what's going to happen with, uh, with the remainder of the league, You know, with the money involved, the financial incentives. So I think it's difficult across the board to... Um, to cancel it when you have such high financial stakes for one league that you don't necessarily have in another. But as I say, going back to my previous question, these um, leagues have the, um, they're obliged to let UEFA know by the 25th of May what they're planning to do. 
And in the case of the Dutch FA, they let them know very early because the government here in the Netherlands decided that there would be no public events between the 1st of June and the 1st of uh, September whatsoever. It kind of forced the Dutch FA's hand a little bit. But um, a very a very strange decision, decision for Amiens, I, I felt for them, but also us, uh, for a racing club, the long to return to the top, to the top league. I mean, for listeners that don't know, they're a huge club and their youth policy has always been something which has kind of um, spawned so many good players and I'm sure that that will... Um, that will continue to do so in future. So the return of a very noticeable club in France at the top level is, I think, something that can be celebrated. But I also have a little bit of sympathy for Amiens too. I've also seen that uh, Toulouse, who are bottom of the league, decided to uh, also sue the French Football Association when there's little possibility of them staying up. They're like bottom of the league by 17 or 14 points with 10 games to go. There's always a chance of them picking up points. But would they realistically stay up? I don't think so. Staying with that, do you believe that any league will restart again? Anyone behind the doors, for example, the Premier League, or do you think that's it? All seasons will have to be voided. Um, I think with the money involved, I don't think that it will be completely voided across the board. I think the financial interests and ramifications and implications will push certain clubs to um, to to play. But there again, you know, you've got the German league potentially starting up on the fifteenth of May, and um, you know, players from Cologne contracting the virus, having symptoms. You know, the thing that I worry about, guys, is. is people do take the decision to play again and a fatality occurs, you know, then, then what, do they, what do they say then? What do they say then? You know, we've, we're fortunately in a position where in the case here in the Netherlands, there's less hospital admissions and there's less, um, there's less um, intensive care admissions. But as the Dutch Prime Minister said, it's the first step on the long way back. And um, safety is paramount. Safety is the most important thing, not just for, for general citizens, but also footballers as well. You know, you've got to think of the sacrifices they made to get themselves in the position to be footballers. And I think, I think it could well be that I think Germany and England will start up again. Spain, they're talking about June perhaps, or, or maybe even Italy. But I think if you, if you ask me which two countries I think will start up, Eventually, I think it will be Germany and England. I think a lot of that's to do with the broadcast money, isn't it? Absolutely, and also the, yeah. the ramifications and implications of of promotion and relegation, for example. And um, as I say, that's going back to my previous point, guys, about the transfer market in particular. You know, you've got players and managers and um, chairmen; they've got an opportunity now to um, kind of just be that little bit more aware. Like, for example. I like to keep an eye on, on, on different players in and around Europe. And just because a player is valued at uh, 15 million euros, for example, doesn't mean to say that it's rubbish. It's as if people uh, pluck um, amounts out of the air and say, oh, if he's not 50 million pounds, he must be rubbish. But my advice is take a look at the previous. To give you an example, I'll give you both an example. I went to watch Arsenal against Eren 
last March and Arsenal lost the first leg in Brittany 3-1. They won the second leg 3-0 at the Emirates. And there was a player in both legs that caught my eye by the name of Benjamin Borgio. He plays for Rennes. He's an attacking uh, midfielder. He scored goals in League R, scored many goals in League R, set pieces, penalties, uh, scoring from different angles. A, a really good all-round player who also came through the youth setup at Racing Club Belong. I think he's an excellent player. I think he's 26 years old. I think he's a tremendous player. Nobody's talking about him. When I suggest him to my um, some of my colleagues or when I'm speaking on an Arsenal podcast, for example, and I say, and they say oh, I've never heard of him, but that's a prime example of someone who's maybe not very well known, but an excellent player. And you don't have to break the bank for him. He would be an excellent player. And um, as I say, it's just that little bit more awareness now as to the players that are out there and to scout and to really be aware of what, of what you can uh, and what you can achieve. Yeah, I agree. There's loads uh, of really unknown players all around Europe that are very good players but for some reason they're not being scouted enough by teams uh, one player I always want to see coming to Europe he's currently playing for Club Brugge Hans Vanaken he's 27 years old he scores goals, he's tall, he's physical but he's not the fastest uh, in the world and maybe that's something that teams look at and say not sure if he'd be good enough but he has the vision has the passing has set pieces has everything to be a great center attacking midfielder uh, at a European club but for some reason he's still stuck uh, in the Belgian league and uh, let's jump into the Twitter questions Kingpin Hala if you could change one result in football history, what would it be? Well, that's a great, that's a great question, isn't it? Um, I think also, as I'm an Arsenal supporter, if I could change one result of my club, it would be the 2006 Champions League final against Barcelona. Totally to me, agree. for me, if that was, uh, if that was, if we, if Arsenal would have won that game, we wouldn't be in the position we are today. And I mean that on many, many, many different levels. You know, that that whole journey of um, coming through the group phase and playing Thun and Ajax and Sparta Prague and then um, and then the likes of uh, Juventus, Villarreal and Real Madrid, of course. You know, it was a tremendous journey. And I still cannot for the life of me. You know, obviously Lehman gets sent off and he decides to take off Robert Pires and I thought, no. And then also... Um, Dennis Bergkamp, you know, it's just, I'm not just saying it because I live in his hometown and I live in his country, but he is the greatest Arsenal player I've ever seen. And for him not to um, not to play a part in that final really made me quite sad. You know, I was fortunate enough to interview his nephew, Roland Bergkamp, who, uh, who played for Excelsior Rotterdam and Brighton. And I spoke to him when he was playing for Ekese Valveik in the first division here in the Netherlands. And obviously the interview was about Roland Bergkamp, but I asked him about his uncle and I said, did he give you any particular advice? And he said, um, he said, well, not really. He said, I didn't really, didn't really see him very often. He said, but I became an Arsenal fan because of my uncle. You know, you, you wouldn't see him, 
you wouldn't see him for 80 minutes and then he would give a, a pass or a, a, an assist or, or score a goal and for him not to play a part in that final. And there's a recent YouTube documentary that Arsenal put up where um, Bergkamp himself said that, um, you know, when when he saw Almunia taking off his top to replace Jens Lehmann, he knew that then he knew that he wasn't going to play a part in that final. And although it was a historic moment for Arsenal to reach that European Cup final, um, we unfortunately we didn't win it. And if I could change one result in history, that would be it. For me, also 2006, but the FA Cup final instead. Absolutely, but didn't do didn't West Ham do really well in that particular final? Oh, yeah, I'm not just saying it because we're on a West Ham uh, podcast. I'm not saying it to be nice, but looking, watching that final as, an, as a neutral, you know, I mean, obviously I've been to Epsom, Upson Park before, I've been to Hamfield uh, before, but the pride of those West Ham fans that particular day, you don't see that in many cup finals. You don't see many cup finals where the fans going have so much pride in the fact that their team is there and that they're going to enjoy that day. And they became so, so close. Some go and they kind of let the experience flit by their eyes in, in the blink of an eye. But I think the West Ham fans that particular day, they did, they did themselves proud. They really did. You know, to go toe-to-toe with an excellent Liverpool side led by Steven Gerrard and the pride of the fans was uh, was very impressive indeed. So close to the to winning the final. And then heartbreaker. Indeed. Second question... From WH Lucas, what positions do you think West Ham should try improving on, and who should West Ham sell? Okay, well, first and foremost, I'm sure the listeners will know I'm I'm not a West Ham fan, but I do respect West Ham, and uh, you have some excellent players. Got some excellent, excellent players, and then I think for West Ham, I, I think. What I would advise is, is just go through the squad with a fine tooth comb and keep the uh, good players that they have, such as Four Niles and, and Wiltshire, for example. And, um, you know, for example, uh, on, um, the um, Anderson, Felipe Anderson, you know, people forget how well he played for Lazio before he arrived. You know, there's some, some excellent players. So I wouldn't know who to who to sell from a West Ham point of view. Obviously, the fans would know more, but my advice would be just before selling anyone, just double-check the quality of that squad because there are some really good players there. West Ham is a a well-respected Premier League club, a well-respected Premier League London club as well. I mean, here in the Netherlands, for example, people know who West Ham are. It's not as if they don't, um, you know, they haven't faded away into existence. And you also have to forget, I mean, West Ham played in Europe and that was, might have been a long time ago I think it was against Palermo and there's not many clubs that have gone on to play in Europe in recent years so um, they can be proud of that fact so in terms of knowing who to sell I'm not entirely sure but I would advocate going through the squad and, and double checking the quality before selling anyone for, for in order to West Ham to improve again in future I agree because there's a lot of quality in that squad and people always forget how good can a player be because he has a bad few weeks, months like let's say Lanzini everyone knows how good he is 
and he's just been unlucky with injuries in my eyes. Third question from Thomas. Who would you like to see Western sign over the summer? Well, um, as I say, not being a West Ham fan, not entirely sure, but I'll I'll go back to um, what I said earlier, guys. I think Calvin Stengs would be a, a really good signing for West Ham. And I also championed Borgio at Wren. And I think if West Ham was to get those two players, they're two excellent footballers. And uh, they could definitely help West Ham. And I'm, I'm not sure if they're being looked at. I know that Calvin Stengs is, but I can't see a, a Real Madrid or um, a Bayern Munich coming in for him as yet. So I think in terms of um, accessible targets and uh, feasible targets, I would suggest Calvin Stengs and Benjamin Borgio. What What are your thoughts about the West Ham owners at the moment? And do you think they can turn the fans uh, around? Well, I think my personal opinion, guys, is you have to remember that they ran a football club before in Birmingham City. And there's many, many owners that have been in charge of football clubs and they haven't run a football club before or they want to be the star. So from an outside looking in, if you look at the owners of West Ham, they have experience in running a football club. And you also have to forget that Birmingham, you also don't, uh, must not forget that Birmingham were quite successful in that in that tenure as well. You know, I've spoken to ex-Birmingham players that played under that ownership and they said about the um, how happy they were at the club, how well they was looked after, camaraderie and things like that. So... I think they know what they're doing, and I think I think it just needs time. I think I think some uh, West Ham fans will know more than what I do, of course. But this is from an outsider looking in. But they've obviously brought the club for the right reasons, and I think their experience will um, will will count for a lot. You know, I think it was the uh, I remember when I think around about 2008 season, the Icelandic owner where West Ham was struggling at times and. I think things were really bad then. So I think that the experience that the owners have can hold West Ham in good stead. And um, I think I think once they get back to having some good results, I think um, I think they can go on to improve in the future. Okay, great. Thank you. So that was the last question. Okay. Everyone listening, remember to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. Thank you, James, for uh, coming on the podcast once again. You're more than welcome. Uh, thank you both for having me on. Thank you to the listeners as well for their time today. I'd just like to let them know of my work on uh, worldfootballindex.com and you can also follow me on at James Rowe NL. If listeners have any questions and they wanted to get in touch about Dutch football or any of my interviews or European football, feel free to tweet at any time and I'll do my best to reply as quickly as possible. You've heard the man. Tune in next week as well see you guys thank you very much see you